Okay, I invite you to imagine that you live on a grand estate upon which your family has dwelled for generations. The house at its center was built with uh, spacious and charming rooms, high ceilings, and plentiful natural light. Both the indoor and outdoor spaces flow naturally into one another and allow for communal gatherings with many friends and neighbors as well as cozy private nooks. The ponds have thrived with life, with lily pads and dragonflies and tadpoles and riding spiders showing off between the cattails and bass and brim and trout that you didn't need anything but a cane pole and a bloodworm to catch. The evenings have been replete with the sounds of crickets and bullfrogs and cicadas and the gardens symbiotic with annuals and perennials and evergreens having sprung forth year-round with seasonal blooms, pansies and gardenias, lilies and rhododendron, Japanese maples and red oaks, jasmine and wisteria, dogwoods and hemlocks. Truly the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for any who've ever been graced to call this wonderful land home but now the boundary lines have sunk into the ground along with the gardens and the ponds and most of the house and in recent years you and your family have been living in the second floor now the only floor above ground the natural world has been diminished the ground has become soft your life and livelihood and the only way that you ever knew how to live is going extinct. You hold on to your hopes, but you also have eyes to see that if nothing changes, another generation or two, and it will all be swallowed up. Now, could something like this really happen? It's already happening. What I've just described is a metaphor of the current experience of many Pacific Islanders whose land and livelihood is being swallowed up inch by inch and foot by foot by the rising tides of climate change. Why is this happening? Well, because for centuries, powerful nations have been gobbling up the Earth's natural resources, allowing ourselves to be duped by the greedy and then ignoring the cost of our ignorance. We have sown the wind, we've burned the carbon, the oceans have captured the heat, the seas expand and rise, the most vulnerable suffer first, now the whirlwind has come. In his poem, 1991, one of our nation's greatest prophets, Wendell Berry, writes, We trample, gouge, and blast, the people leave the land, the land flows to the sea, the fine old houses fall, the fine old trees come down. There's good news today, by the way. Just give me a moment. Then, even more sobering, in his book, Between the World and Me, Ta-Nehisi uh, Coates, Ta-Nehisi Coates, sorry, hauntingly prophesies that perhaps the only thing capable of dismantling centuries-old racist systems of oppression will be the destructive forces of climate change. The inability of empire to cope with rising sea levels, ever costly 
uh, ever more costly storms and wildfires and the breakdown of the supply chain of energy and food. The hair stood up on my arms as I held the book in front of me and read his conclusion. Whoa! Indeed, we have sown the wind and the whirlwind is upon us. If we're to be faithful Christians, we have to face up to these realities. As American Christians, we have to confess that we too are implicated. And through such confessions, we will find something we would not expect to find in the midst of all the bad news. New hope and new energy. Our text today is from the prophet Isaiah. In our Wednesday night chapel Bible study, this epiphany, we've been learning from Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann that prophets always do two things. First, they criticize. They criticize through public grief and lament. Lament is crying out, a visceral cry. Pain expressed. And in the public square, and that includes sanctuaries and synagogues and mosques, pulpits, they express sadness and anger over the way things are. The tears that they can't hide have an effect of exposing the lies and the deceptions of the powers. Their tears fall into the cracks of old systems of domination and oppression and begin to erode their foundations. But the prophets not only criticize and lament, they do something else. Even more, they energize through poetic speech that amazes and inspires hope. Their language inscribes new dreams and possibilities on broken hearts and lifts up the despairing on the wings of eagles. This is precisely what Isaiah is doing for us today. He's standing in the midst of God's exiled people in Babylon, in a place of dashed hopes and quotidian despair, inhabiting as aliens the land of a nation that did everything it could to strip Israel of her power, her provision, her land, her God. And in this open-air prison, Isaiah does what? Organize a rescue operation? Call on the angels to swoop down and save them? Take up the sword and fight the oppressor to the death? No. Isaiah waxes poetic about comfort of all things. Comfort. Oh, comfort, my people, says your God. We look around at this forlorn and God-forsaken place to find a strange man who looks like he's been weeping for years, but who is now smiling back at us. This is the prophet Isaiah. Then he asks us all a question, or a series of questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is the Lord who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Isaiah wants us to look up and to see the artist of 
the universe, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Isaiah says to us, lift up your hearts and lift up your eyes. Look to the one who gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. And he speaks these amazing, energizing words to a people, many of whom must first look at him and reckon him as a madman. Look at this fool promising comfort in an open-air prison. Yes, we are losing things that may never come back. The atolls and the ice caps, the salmon and the polar bears, the coral reefs and countless endangered species. When I'm walking with a cane one day, many of the, of the barrier islands of North Carolina will be submerged during storms and high tides, and some will be uninhabitable. When our children and grandchildren are old and full of years, they may look back on snow days like they were a dream. The global disruptions of climate change will test future generations and require from them great courage and resilience. Foreseeing these possibilities, we at First Baptist Church have established an intentional practice for creation. It's called Attend Daily to the Beauty of the Earth. If I could sum up this practice with the poetry of prophets, I would say it comes very close to some of John Prine's lyrics. Blow up your TV. Throw away your paper. Go to the country. Build you a home. Plant a little garden. Eat a lot of peaches. Try and find Jesus on your own. Maybe that last part you need help, but who am I to argue with a prophet? A beloved uh, church member gave me these lyrics uh, imprinted on a mask during COVID. So I would walk around in the grocery store, people come up and look at all these man. What does that say? They'd always walk away smiling. What if the most prophetic way to attend the beauty of the world is not to make an idol of despair. But to look with hope in spite of the evidence and with new eyes to look with affection on the particular place and on the specific people God has entrusted to us to love. What if the most radical thing we can do for the climate is give our full attention to a child who's just been born or to a person who's critically ill and dying? Adoring and doting on them in their time of need. Serving them with passionate attention. Learning again from Barry, who criticizes and energizes, what if the only thing keeping a desecrated place from becoming a sacred place is affection? As his character Jaber Crow says, it all turns on affection. What if the most radical thing we can do now is to give one plot of ground our full attention, to ask what's in the soul and to memorize the names of the trees, to keep the hummingbird feeder full, to let the moss grow and to put the weather app down 
and watch the curl of the rhododendron leaves in the morning. To spend hours not being productive, but watching the sparks of the fireflies and the different species graduate from the ground all the way to the tops of the trees in just a matter of hours in the dark night. What if the most radical thing we can do is look beyond the tops of those trees to the God who sits above the circle of the earth, who has an intimate knowledge of its distress and who will not let so many grasshoppers have the last word. I was stunned to learn just a month ago at the Conference of the Parties, uh, also known as the UN Climate Convention, that there was a pavilion there that was designed to offer space for prayer and meditation and hope. Now, I've never been to UN Climate Convention. Perhaps some of you have been there or been around it. It's very shiny. There's a lot of affluence. A lot of profit to be made and to be carved out. And there are also prophets. They're praying now, carving out new pathways to a better future. And there in the midst of it all is a space for prophetic speech, lyrical poetry, articulated hope. Marin Wara, the global organizing director of Green Faith, said at one of the panel discussions at this event, when they see faith communities united for the same cause, these big corporations get shook. Another participant, a woman named Athena, said she went to the pavilion and prayed, and prayed for hope. And she said, this, this is where we derive the energy to carry on. Prayer? Without that kind of action, does not work. <laughs>